0: Put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No-Till Flowers Podcast. As always, I'm your ever-curious host, Jenny Love. Today's guest needs little introduction in the small farm no-till world. Jesse Frost has helped so many of us learn about soil health and diversified small-scale production through his YouTube channel, No-Till Growers, also the No-Till Growers podcast, and his book, The Living Soil Handbook. Be sure to follow the links in the show notes to tap into those amazing resources if you don't already know about them. Those of you that have been listening here since the beginning know that it was Jesse who got me podcasting after he interviewed me for his show. He, along with Jackson Roulette, helped produce the very first season of No-Till Flowers, so it felt really sweet to be back behind the mic together, getting nerdy. If you struggled with heavy clay, boggy, or compacted soils, this episode is for you. Frequently, I get asked about my recommendations for clay and poorly draining areas, but I actually have no experience with those conditions myself since I have a very silty loam, fast-draining soil. But Jesse does, and I eagerly picked his brain for you all, so you are welcome. Also in this episode, Jesse and I take a stroll down memory lane to consider both of our paths as regenerative growers. As you'll hear, five or six years ago, there was only a trickle of guidance available for smaller farms looking to implement no-till practices on a production level. A lot has changed today. There are many books, many podcasts, and even several conferences dedicated to agroecology and regenerative soil practices on the small farm level. Part of the mission of this podcast is to help break down that deluge of information into smaller digestible bites. But it can still feel a bit overwhelming, especially if you're new to commercial growing in general and you're just trying to figure out how to grow flowers or vegetables, let alone also master soil health and ecological stewardship. Two years ago, I launched an online cohort program for growers who want help with implementing regenerative practices on their farm or in their gardens. In this small group mentoring environment, cohort members have access to a library of pre-recorded videos on key regenerative areas like bed preparation, seed starting, pest management, and making homemade natural inputs a la Korean Natural Farming and jadam. In addition to the videos, I host live learning labs each month where I take cohort members out into the field and do a virtual tour of my farm, answer their questions, and get members any helpful visuals that may speed up their learning process. The cohort also has a private forum on the Regenerative Flower Farmers Network for posting questions and sharing thoughts with other members at any time. My goal for this cohort space is to be able to directly coach anyone who could use it and also to build community. While I enjoy podcasting quite a bit, I really dislike that this is a one-sided conversation. I put info out on the airwaves and hope it hits home with you and that you can run with it from there, but I never really know what follow-up questions you might have. The Regenerative Growers cohort gives me a chance to hear your voice too, and I really, really like that. If this sounds like it would be helpful to you, there is a link to more information in the show notes. The cohort is an annual program and registration for 2024 opens on January 5th. You can register anytime after that, but I'd suggest getting into the cohort sometime before the end of January so you'll be able to tap into 12 full months of live learning labs and coaching and community building. I'm very excited about this opportunity to connect with you and build upon everything you've heard here on the podcast and so much more. And if the cohort maybe sounds like it's a bit too much of a commitment for you at this time, there are also several short courses available on the Regenerative Flower Farmers Network. There's one on there on how to run a successful flower CSA, one on foliage crops, one on hiring a farm crew one on marketing, and one on woodies. Each short course takes just a few hours to complete, so check those out if you could use a helping hand in any of those areas. As always, a big shout-out in general to Ruffin members who, through their membership, so generously support the making of this podcast. If you're not a member and you'd like to join, it's just $20 a year. Lots of detailed articles, podcast transcripts, and a community chat are available on Ruffin. Plus, your membership means that I can make more podcasts. So thank you guys for all that support. And one last quick shout out. To those of you who recently left a review for the podcast, Stivation, Jenfish10, and Irene from Line in the Sand Farm all really made my day with your spirited reviews. So many thanks for those, you guys. And with that, let's dive into my chat with Jesse. Welcome to the podcast, Jesse. I'm so glad to chat with you today.
1: Thank you for having me, Jenny. I'm always excited to chat. I know this is uh, going to be a lot of fun because you and I can just nerd out for hours.
0: <laughs> this is true. It's like dangerous to get us in the same room together. <laughs> because It will maybe never stop. So can you introduce yourself and tell us some of your context in terms of where are you farming and what do you farm and how much land do you have and sort of your background in that capacity as a grower?
1: Yeah, so uh, I farm in central Kentucky. Uh we, my farm with my wife, Hannah, we have a farm called rough draft farmstead. We are, uh, I think together. I mean, we're celebrating our 13th anniversary. So oh, wow. roughly 13 years together of, <laughs> of farming. Um, and we are, uh, yeah, it's about three quarters of an acre in production. I manage about at full acre, I guess. Uh, Part of that is like a small soccer field for me and the kids. So I don't know that all of that is necessarily, (laughs) is all necessarily agriculture. Um, But you know, there's mowing and all the things that the upkeep, the whole farm is like five and a half acres but we don't use all of that. Um, In fact, half of it, like the back half of our property, we've, our neighbor will mow like every other year. And this past year, we just, you know, we just, this past year was like the second year without mowing and just the wildflowers was, it was just incredible. And I'm like, this is my new thing. And I know my neighbors hate it, but, um, <laughs> you know, they, they're just like, what are you doing? But just the, the abundant wildflowers, yeah. it was amazing. The ajira, wild ajiratum, and oh, all these cool, cool things. Um, so that was fun. And, uh, uh, context wise also, I, uh, you know, we're in zone 6b7a cuspers now that the hardiness zone has Ooh, it's literally change? like my street is like speckled <laughs> yeah um yeah we were solid 6b there up until recently so um you know the winters are not quite as cold as they used to be yep and um we you know we are uh pretty you know we're like considered semi-subtropical mm-hmm. so you know mm-hmm. decent heavy rainfalls um but we get pretty cold in the winter, uh, and. Yeah. And then, uh, I, you know, I'm co-founder of notillgrowers.com with my partner, Jackson Roulette, and we do a lot of podcasts and videos yeah. and, uh, all sorts of stuff like that.
0: Yeah. And you've got an awesome YouTube channel, um, which I, I, is one of my biggest resources. I have to say every time you put a new video out, I'm like, oh, gotta go watch. <laughs> so you have that. And you also wrote the book, the living soil handbook. So, um, you, you've got that in your wheelhouse as well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's true busier than i realized I yeah, guess. yeah.
0: You, you, you do more than a few things <laughs> and so your crops generally on your farm are vegetables correct like diversified vegetable production
1: yeah diversified vegetable production i mean um in terms of flowers we don't do any sort of flower production but we grow a lot of flowers yeah. um certainly for the ecological benefits uh inspired a lot by you i love your 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 take on you know like why everybody should grow flowers <laughs> and. Um, you know, I, I think for a long time, I was kind of like flowers, like it's yeah. cool. And I like them. And I like the butterflies and stuff. But I think you Yeah, I mean, I love just the, the amount of crop families that I don't yeah. share with flowers. I love yeah. the diversity of insects and stuff that they bring in. And um, and the beauty, of course, just like yeah. our farm with the living pathways, as we've talked about in the past, uh, it just feels like a park and adding the flowers to the hedges and stuff. It just makes it it's just such a like relaxing and nice place to yeah. be. It doesn't feel like this like know stagnant or uh you know a farm at this business atmosphere necessarily like it it is but it doesn't feel that way which is
0: yeah yeah, especially um, if so you live. So mostly vegetables, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you live at your farm, it's so nice to have it feel like you would actually want to go out there just to relax in the evening <laughs> yeah. instead of it always just being this production space. So I think flowers do a lot to add that, and then just the um, amount of diversity of life that comes in when flowers are around, and then all the beneficial insects that come with that, which really help with pest control. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm a huge advocate of having lots of flowers at vegetable farms as well. So, <laughs> but what's nice about your farm and for those listeners who don't already know your farm is that it's really a, a very similar scale to a lot of smaller flower farms um similar to mine so like your farm and my farm are, you know my farm's maybe a little bit bigger but most of it's in perennial production so the actual annual production is similar to yours and so there's a lot of transferable information i mean it doesn't necessarily matter what the crop is it's the the um, stewardship of the space and how you lay it out and everything is really um you can just, you know, trade spaces basically <laughs> with that kind of information. It doesn't matter. So um, so that's why I highly recommend anybody who does not know your YouTube channel yet should check it out because there's such valuable information for soil health and living pathways and um, bed preparation and all sorts of things that you go over in that. I, I really value what you create there. So, um, So now my next question is, how did you learn about no-till growing and regenerative practices because you literally, like you've literally written a book on it now essentially <laughs> <laughs> and you have this great youtube channel and so it's like where did you start like what what was your primary educational resource when you started um and maybe even just if you can talk about like what drew you down this path anyway in the very beginning was there a production problem or you were just really curious I know you maybe were organic before you started to really dive into no-till per se so just walk us through like early days jesse like <laughs> trying to figure out no-till regenerative farming
1: yeah yeah it's funny because you know these sorts of uh, you know uh, histories are can start in so many different places mm-hmm. um for me like it really goes back to when i was living in new york city and working and all of it really starts here because i was living in new york city and i was working in wine and I found, like discovered, and I don't know, maybe we've talked about this on previous episodes, but I discovered these like natural wines. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to understand like what made them tick, like what made them so different from other wines, like why these felt so alive and so vibrant. And so I started visiting those producers out in Europe. And and I remember one producer in particular uh, named Bertrand Guthrou, uh, who's at Vouet and Sorbet is the name of his uh, champagne. And it um he i just remember going to visit him and i was young i was probably like 25 24 yeah. 25 maybe um and i would i went to visit him and he took me to like i was going to see this winemaker it was one of the first i'd ever seen like on their property and he didn't take me to his vineyards he like took me to his cattle and oh, i just remember being like Oh, this is like <laughs> very different um and i was not like i didn't have a background in agriculture so it wasn't like i even knew what to look for what i was looking at really beyond i yeah. was like okay cattle <laughs> i get it um <laughs> was, but it was biodynamic vaguely...
0: what was the cattle for or was it just through, like manure production and pasture um grazing and stuff what was that what was that about
1: yeah so the cattle was about the biodynamics okay um okay. and because uh we don't hear about biodynamics very much in vegetable production mm-hmm. and um, flower production, but like in the wine world, especially in like the early aughts, Mm. early to mid aughts, like that was a big thing. Like biodynamics was like a very big in the wine world and still to some extent is as far as I know, I mean, I'm a little Mm -hmm. bit out of that, that world now, but, um, uh, you know, it, it for, for me, like I was aware of it and I'd read a bit about like Steiner and, and Mm -hmm. how biodynamics works. Um, and, but I didn't. Re- I'd never really seen it in practice, and that was his thing. It was like having these animals there around his vineyards, wow. um, and then being able to use the manure and like, uh, you know, in the in the various preparations yep. that are involved in biodynamics, um, and so that was really interesting. And then like, and it was in the fall, so we went in to his vineyards, and we were like tasting the grapes and comparing them to his neighbors, and like smelling the soil and like tasting the oh soil God. and like. Sounds it amazing. It was very. Yeah, and I mean, you know, here I am, like a twenty-five-year-old, sort of like punk kid in New York City, (laughs) getting this, this incredible experience that like all of us now would kill for, you know? Um, and, uh, and it really did. It changed everything like about how I looked at farming and how I look at agriculture. And I was just like, this is what I want, (laughs) whatever this is, I want to do this. (laughs) And so like, you know, within a few years, I figured out how to like, kind of leave New York City and, and explore that. Um, for me, a long time too, I wanted to be a winemaker. Mm -hmm. I thought that was what ultimately like, you know what i was working towards hmm. um but i also know about my personality that i don't i can't just do one thing like i don't want to do <laughs> i didn't want to just make one product right. like i was like that yep. i don't know that's yep. my personality like i want to do a bunch of different stuff so um and i'd also had a background in cooking which is like a whole other story but that was i was like oh food okay yeah. food makes sense like i like eating good fresh food i love vegetables um this is like this seems like a sensible path so uh, this does answer your question eventually, I promise. Um, (laughs) no, I love this
0: background. Keep it coming. I know.
1: I know. I can't help that. I can't help but just load it with context. Uh, so the, um, you know, we in, I think it was like 2009 or something, I was kind of like really burnt out on the city and feeling really depressed. Like I had a lot of depression issues Mm. and, um, and I, found this farm in Southern Kentucky that was biodynamic farm It was hmm. one of the few biodynamic vegetable farms out there because that was what I was assuming I was like okay so if you know biodynamics is a keyword in wine certainly it's a keyword in in vegetable growing and it just wasn't like mm-hmm. there wasn't I, I that was just like one of the few farms I could find that I had that touted you know biodynamics and they're out there
2: yeah
1: um but there's not a ton of them or there wasn't at the time and um and so yeah really that's what I wanted to learn And this farm was called Bug Tussle and they had internships available and, um, they were in Southern Kentucky. So it was not too far from where I grew up. It was just a few hours. I grew up in central Kentucky. And, um, so yeah, I, I got in touch with them and did an internship and the beauty of that farm. And like, if you're gonna learn on a, if you're like, you know, completely green to agriculture, um, this farm did everything. Mm. Like they did a CSA, um, they did, uh, animal product, like animal um, by uh, management intensive yeah. grazing mm-hmm. yeah so mm-hmm. like animal husbandry um but really intensive like Greg Judy style oh, wow. you know really intensive management um and then you know they did turkeys they did pigs they did eggs or they did hens um mm-hmm. they they just did everything and it was like really uh, and we did a lot of foraging like we did forged a bunch of chanterelles like I just got the most amazing crash course yeah like I don't I don't generally recommend internships to people because yeah. they're they can be expo- uh, you know exploitive and all of these things yeah. uh, but i just happened to luck out on mine it was mm. incredible mm. and the farmer would like take us into the eric smith he's my mentor um would take us out into the woods and like teach us the different trees and like the different woodland plants and all this stuff so i got just an amazing education and i spent two years there um doing that and uh you know that sort of immersion uh, you know it's incredible i still feed off that education quite a bit um and my i I met my wife in the second year she was one of the (laughs) other interns Uh, so many benefits (laughs) yeah i was gonna say that
0: really paid off (laughs) really paid off just keeps going
1: um and i also met like speaking of biodynamics just to shout him out uh Mm -hmm. jeff poppin who's the barefoot farmer Mm. um some people may be familiar with him some people may not but he's coming out with a book in the if you're curious about biodynamics yeah. um i wouldn't be the person to ask it's been a long enough that i wouldn't be able to explain it very well but he's coming out with a book from chelsea green in, oh, the, in cool. the spring so um and he's one of he was one of my mentors as well just very eccentric character but one of the smartest growers like All just right. his knowledge of production is incredible yeah um but uh yeah so i got a really great crash course in like everything farming and biodynamics and all that stuff but we were a tillage farm
0: i was going to say it was it no till that was my follow-up question is that where you learned about no till
1: so we were a tillage farm and a row crop farm and for people that don't know what like row cropping is it's basically just like a single row in a big tilled field Mm field you just till it up every year and then you just kind of do rows like you Mm -hmm. would see you know like most farms Mm -hmm. are, are row crop farms um so that's kind of what we were doing but we were doing diversified vegetables and we were using a lot of compost uh horse manure compost and um, we would do cover cropping like it was a very ecologically conscious sort of form of tillage so i learned to till but i learned to till right and it was always there these ideas like sort of bouncing around of like you know uh different ways to incorporate that idea of like not let's not till it this year let's how can we just get the crop in without doing that Mm -hmm. um but when you till a lot you find that like if you don't like it that first year stuff can get really compacted depending on the soil that you're dealing with so it doesn't feel possible Mm -hmm. um and i would try different things especially like when we moved away from there uh it would have been my wife and i bought land from them we lived there for four years we built an off-grid cabin that's like a whole other story we lived without running water and electricity for like four years wow um and you know in that total like before that we were living in a barn so it was quite an upgrade but we um (laughs) So we did that for yeah for like six years that was what we did uh but in 2016 we moved away uh, back closer to our family here in central kentucky away from southern kentucky and we yeah we just had you know uh, a bunch of different things that like i would find oh for instance uh i i wanted to incorporate more no-till practices and um and i wanted to incorporate our animals at the time we had a bunch of sheep And so I would try different things. Like I was trying to graze the cover crop with the sheep and that was Mm. good. There was no easy, there's no effective or responsible way of terminating cover crop with animals in our climate. Mm. Like you would basically have to have them mow it all the way to the ground. It's going to grow back and their health is going to suffer. So it wasn't just, there was no like good way to do it that way. Um, but we could have them graze like sorghum, Sudan grass and rye. Mm -hmm. Um, and it would come back, you know, it, it would just like it was like mowing it lightly, you know, and it would just come back and that was great. Like that was really good for the soil health. Um, So that was like one thing that was kind of bouncing around in my head. And then also like in our tunnels, it was just too hard to get the BCS in and out. So a lot of times I would just like pull the crop out at the time. I would just yank the crop out and kind of like rake it mm-hmm. and then maybe use the broad fork or something if necessary. But a lot of times I would just like kind of replant it. one of those things where i felt like i was like looking around being like is anybody
0: (laughs) nobody's watching does this this make sense like
1: is this (laughs) this feels ridiculous right
0: Um, it's too easy that's what i say about no-till farming at a certain point it's actually too easy even though it's overwhelming in the beginning when you're trying to figure it all out but it's so much easier than tillage i swear (laughs) i know yeah
1: yeah and in a way it felt like i mean it felt like cheating or something mm -hmm. yeah it was like it was and you know certainly it can be harder but it was like It can be depending on the design but that in that case i was just like this is so simple you Mm -hmm. know i don't have to wait for the soil to like digest anything i'm just Mm -hmm. going um and it was working so that was like another thing but i still didn't feel at the time that it could be translated to the fields Mm -hmm. like to a bigger scale like i was like i can do it on like a 50 foot bed in a hoop house Okay. and maybe not even every one i could just like do it on this one and that's like a thing that's cool. Like I could. That's a tool in the toolbox that I can use sometimes. Um, but then I remember, and all this is it. Just was like all sort of on bouncing around in my head. And then I heard the Farmer to Farmer podcast with Singing Frogs Farm.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I heard that episode and, too. <laughs> and it like and that
1: was the one. Yeah, yeah that was the one that definitely just like yeah. sensed it. Just like sank. Uh, what's the word? Sink, sinked synced it, synced it all together. Synced <laughs> it all up. <laughs> that's a word. Yeah, yeah. synced it all yeah. up. Yeah. yeah. And that, yeah, that's a great, I mean, that podcast, obviously, yeah. Chris, uh, Chris yeah. did a great job with that show. And then, and, yeah. and people should go back and listen to it. I'll
0: link to that particular episode um, in the show notes because, yeah, everybody should listen to it. It's such a good one.
1: And yeah, there are a few, um, uh, there are a few no till episodes out there. I think we posted them on No Till, mm-hmm. like collected all the ones that he kind of talks about no till, but there weren't a lot. Yeah. I mean, nobody was really talking about right. this.
0: Yeah. It wasn't a buzzword.
1: And that's when I got the idea of, Uh, starting the No-Till Market Garden podcast, because that was like, we need, I want to call, like, there wasn't any information about this. There was like, Singing Frogs Farm had done like a few things you could watch online, and then there was Charles Dowding. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: and Andrew and, came out with his book sometime, maybe not right around then, but Andrew Menford's book came out. But yeah, it's still it was like a, a shortage of information. I was I was probably right around the same time having the same curiosity you were and being like, I don't know. I don't know. I see this book. I hear this podcast. How do I learn how to do this?
1: Yeah, exactly. And Andrew. Yeah, I think Andrew's book came out. I want to say in 19, maybe like early. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember. I yeah. interviewed him like right after it came out. Um, But yeah, that was, that was super helpful because it was Mm -hmm. seeing like from a bunch of different angles Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, that, that it was, it was just, there was, I think there was a lot of interest in it. Certainly. I mean, we've, you know, like no-till growers (laughs) flourished because of that, because there were so many people like, what, how does this work? Yeah. Because I think like, I think a lot of times people assume we're just doing it because it's you know, like it's in vogue or it's like Mm -hmm. the thing. Mm -hmm. But the reality for us was like we to kind of answer the tail end of your question there um, about like what we were trying to address. Like I was tired of working till dark. I was like tired of fighting weeds. Mm -hmm. I was tired Mm -hmm. of cultivating in the the hot sun. Like I Mm -hmm. wanted to be spending my time doing other stuff. And we had like a young kid. I was like, I don't want to at the end of the day, just be like, I'm too tired. You can you can yeah. like jump on me if you want. That's about as <laughs> I'll much be
0: laying over here. energy as I have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's I, the and conventional farming is when you're doing tillage and you're doing this sort of more um, traditional. I don't even I hate calling it traditional approach because it's not actually traditional. It's like a more modern approach to farming. Um, it's not even the traditional approach, but conventional farming. It's it you're waging war all the time. You're always trying to kill something. You're always trying to beat something. Um, and I think that's such a different mindset from regenerative growing, is where you're you're letting nature do you know i'd say 70 percent of the work you still have a lot of work to do as the grower it's still a lot of work but you take some of that um, responsibility off of your plate to uh, manipulate the ecosystem and instead you let nature do that and it yeah there's a lot more energy left at the end of the day if you're not trying to wheel around a bcs i had to give up the bcs a long time ago because it (laughs) literally broke my back (laughs) so
3: oh
0: yeah yeah well i mean you know not not literally but it definitely like hurt <laughs> quite a bit to use the bcs so anyway yeah, yeah I, I i agree that no-till farming or genitive farming is is less exhausting in that capacity
1: yeah and you know it was just one of those things that like i just wanted to figure out a way to not have to be battling all the time mm-hmm. like it just felt like i was battling all the time mm-hmm. and, I, and i've said this in other formats um and probably in videos and stuff but like weeds are not you know weeds are not like nature punishing you it's like Mm -hmm. nature giving you a sign that like Mm -hmm. no no no, i need plants Mm -hmm. i need this and if you're not going to provide it for me i'm going to do it myself Mm -hmm. and yeah it's the emergency solar panels thing where they're just it's that's such a critical part of soil health having growing plants and living plants and if you're not doing everything else right nature's Mm going to do it for you and it's going to be hard to keep doing the things that you're not doing right so I don't know yeah for me like answering that those sorts of questions and then just like resiliency of the farm like some years are hot some Mm -hmm. years are dry some years are cold Mm -hmm. like i just wanted a farm that could do it (laughs) That didn't matter what it was like it would it would just be like okay we're wet this year let's go
0: yeah
1: or we're hot this year and we're dry let's go yeah and i wanted a farm that was much more that wasn't so moody all the time that wasn't like okay now that it's hot you have to do all these things to manage you know your your yeah. crops and i wanted to, yeah i just wanted a I wanted a farm that was more resilient in that way
3: yeah
1: back to that starting the no-till market garden podcast that was a huge part of it, it was just mm-hmm. like i gotta call people and figure mm-hmm. it out and mm-hmm. share it because there's so much energy you know so much mm-hmm. enthusiasm for this idea but there's not a lot of information about how to do it mm-hmm. um did you feel yeah,
0: overwhelmed that's... by all the like as you were interviewing people and and sort of collecting all this information and in these different systems and practices and options, Um, did you feel a sense of being overwhelmed by it. I feel I hear that a lot from newer participants in, you know, in no till farming, um, particularly when they come to my farm and do we do field days at my farm and we walk around and we talk about all the things. And by the end of the day, everybody's jazzed and like super excited. But you can also see like it's it's overwhelming to try to like grasp all the concepts the whole way from start to finish all at once. Did you get that sense? I mean, I certainly felt overwhelmed (laughs) the first few years. (laughs)
1: yeah um yes and no i think the the no only comes from it was so gradual because Mm. there just wasn't like for the for the grower getting into it now mm-hmm. it's a fire hose yeah like for us it
0: was, a trickle. It was like
1: where <laughs> even is the, the trickle like well i gotta find the trickle
0: right um
1: so i can imagine like it would be very overwhelming and i, I don't have good advice for how to manage that because it you know for like there wasn't anybody at the time even yeah. you know like deep compost mulch right nobody used that term as far as i knew or saw yeah. like that was just a term we all started using to describe what we were doing um i know that you know, Charles Dowding and Richard Perkins were calling it no dig. So that was a thing. But like, now I'm seeing terms like deep compost mulch and appear in research papers and stuff. And like, we didn't have that. Um, but at the same time, yes, like you have, there was trying to figure out what was relevant and what wasn't, that was hard. You must've
0: done a lot of like experimenting too. Like you must've like kind of heard a little bit of something like in the wind, so to speak. (laughs) And then you're like, okay, I have to like, I have to be the one to figure this out. Did you have that sense where you're like, okay, I've heard this like grumble, not grumble, but you know what I mean? Like a little bit of a whisper over here about like the equivalent of deep mulch, let's say. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to just try it. I'll be the one to try it at my farm. Did you do much of that?
1: Oh yeah, I still do that. Yeah, And it's, and it's probably like the most obnoxious thing about my business is that like, (laughs) I, I know it could, we could be like more productive, but I'm always like, well, let's just try this one random thing um and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't but i'm in a position now that like i can do it so you don't have to sort of mm-hmm, thing
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and i like that because i you know a lot of people will come to me with ideas and i'm like i promise you like and for the most part i probably tried
0: it <laughs> tried it all <laughs> and i can
1: give you some and, and i think also like that's that's a good place as an educator to be because mm-hmm. it As you know, I want to be able to say, like, not only have I tried it, I've tried it in a production context, Mm -hmm. and I can tell you this is what I learned, and this is why I wouldn't do it.
0: Yeah. And I do think it's, it's such a privilege. I feel it's a privilege for me now at this point in my journey with no till. So, kind of like you, I wasn't too overwhelmed in the beginning because there wasn't a whole lot of, um, information for flower farmers. I definitely leaned on Bear Mountain flowers. They were a huge inspiration, but most of my inspiration was coming from vegetable farming and there wasn't a ton of information specific to flowers. So it felt like it could kind of go slow with the pieces of the puzzle. Um, But now there is so much more information available and I think it is overwhelming to people. And I, I consider it a privilege to be able to be the risk-taker now, I definitely do a lot of risk-taking experiments at my farm just to test out the stuff like jadom and Korean natural farming. These were two things that weren't applied very much at all to flower production. you mentioned and i wanted to make sure we do it to talk about how you moved farms and how that probably totally changed your context um because uh i know you didn't move very far but i also know that you don't have to go very far to have a completely different context um, around your farm in terms of soil and and resources and um, layout and stuff like that so i really wanted to dive into this as for the meat and potatoes of of talking about production is um can you explain what major shifts happened between moving your farms? And then also I want to go down the rabbit hole of talking about compaction and heavy clay. Uh, so let's, let's dive into that, shall we? Yeah.
1: So it's, it's important to, um, uh, you know, kind of describe what that other farm was Mm -hmm. that other farm. We were up on a ridge top and the soil drained really well. There were a lot of very big rocks. It wasn't rocky, but it was like Mm -hmm. there were big rocks Mm -hmm. around and that was kind of, frustrating. Um, but the soil was good. And uh, in certain spots, it was like the rocks were kind of intense, and we couldn't farm those spots, but we found other areas that we could. And um, being up on a ridge top meant that we were very exposed to wind, mm-hmm. and that um, some forms of irrigation were like not effective at certain times, because it was drained so well, and because of wind. Mm-hmm. So like, and it'd be just the exposure, like things just dried out very fast. Um, so that was that was one farm and this farm is uh you know it's very kind of beautiful loam like i didn't realize yeah. how good i had it <laughs> um so this new farm is like uh, kind of heavy clay mm. um pretty compacted from previous horse the previous owners had horses here um big or big quarter horses Ooh, yeah. and um they also had alpaca in one area like it was very intense in that way um and it's kind of on a hill uh, it's not really on a ridgetop but it's kind of hilly um and it's got tree, more trees around it so it's a little bit more uh um uh, you know uh, protected sheltered, I guess from yeah. wind and sheltered from uh wind and it's kind of the garden has like buildings on one side and trees on the other side so it's like got a decent amount of protection um and that's nice from wind and, mm-hmm. and sun exposure especially in the, the early morning in the summer we get a little bit of longer window there where it's cool. And it does not drain. Just mm. does not drain. There's yeah, whole yeah, parts yeah. of the garden that are just like you can see it from above. Really? You look. Ugh. Like you can see like the difference in growth. You can see yeah. like just the how wet it is. Like when I take drone shots. Um, yeah, you can see how wet it is, mm. which is just ridiculous. Uh, but the, you know, that those farms are 15 minutes away from each other. Yeah. <laughs> like they're <laughs> like I just described two totally different climates. Right. And they're like 15 minutes away from each other. Yeah. Um, so they are You know that's been a really as an educator really great experience as a farmer really obnoxious um (laughs) the you know like i i have mostly farmed i farmed like mediocre soil but it was decent draining Mm -hmm. and then i farmed really good soil that drained really well Mm. almost too well and now i'm farming really heavy clay that does not drain at all so it's been kind of a nice uh i i have a lot of experience now <laughs> um and uh the you know the, the 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 sort of reassuring thing is that the practices work okay. but as you've found it can take time yeah and um especially with clay clay is just very stubborn yeah uh and it especially when it's not draining and we've had to manipulate the soil a little bit more than i hoped to, okay. to be able to allow for, so that's raising the beds. Like we've okay. done a lot more raised beds. Um, that part that doesn't drain that you can see from above, I had to turn all those beds downhill. Oh. And originally I kind of had them running across the slope. So this past year we kind of were like, we were getting there. Like I could yeah. tell the production was improving, but I was like, do I want to spend like three more years really Waiting. working on this plot yeah. or it's the better thing to just turn these things downhill. Cause that's what they seem to want. Is to be able to just like let them release a mm. little bit more of that water so mm. we turned them all downhill and i put them all in cover crop um and that was not my favorite thing to do but we basically just yeah ran the, the the um the rotary plow through and built the beds and okay and um yeah and we didn't actually you know till up the whole area because the way this clay works um once you raise those beds like it'll flatten back down in like five months it's just so malleable it just like drops wow it's it's really really uh wild to see
2: yeah
1: um so like yeah we'll dig like sometimes i get frustrated because we're having water issues and i'll dig a quick like drainage ditch and that ditch will be gone in like a couple months wow um and it's and it's not like filling in it's just like sinking back to where it was yeah um so yeah there's been that's like a whole different you know i I sh- probably should have put some drainage tile in, which is just like, mm. that's the answer. If you have okay. poor drainage, drainage tile will work. Being an idiot, I was <laughs> like, I want to try all the other things. Right. And so that's what I've been doing. Um, And, you know, they, it's great because like on the one hand, like it works, like cover crops and all these things okay. have really fleshed out that, um, the the, the soil organic matter to a point when it, i'm not having the drainage issues i was having okay even when it's wet um except for in that one spot that was the only thing like i just just it was improving but it wasn't improving fast enough um so other than that like having like significantly better production all across the board even with um the and then the other side of that is compaction and so in the areas that i did like absolutely no you know tillage that i just mm-hmm. kind of went like for a deep compost mulch right. just went straight over basically sod um those places have been um uh they've finally worked themselves out too but i'm okay. also using a little bit of a broad fork like broad okay. forking every season okay um as needed and uh some beds don't need it anymore and some beds i probably will still have to do one more season with but about half my beds no longer need it okay and And how many seasons
0: was that yeah how many
1: this will be season number four going into on this property um so it took about two or three seasons to finally get to the point where we're not needing to use it quite as much that's kind of what i've always said about it is that especially something like a broad fork or forking Mm -hmm. in general um it will make itself obsolete now can you get there without the broad fork yes but it just Mm -hmm. takes more time right and like if you're dealing with compaction it's so limiting
2: mm-hmm.
1: in terms of your water movement, in ter- terms right. of your nutrient access, in terms of your roots being able to penetrate. Mm-hmm. That like, oh, yeah. there's no reason not to. <laughs> like, the soil's not just <laughs> gonna like bounce back to life because you stop tilling it. It like right. needs some help. Yes. Um, and that is in my, you know, in my view, like that's our role. That's our job mm-hmm. is to like. Mm-hmm be that steward. Mm-hmm. And so when you're broad forking and you have a lot of compost involved, and it sort of works itself down into those cracks, starts to pin that, that compaction apart, mm-hmm. and give some space for microorganisms and for, you know, roots and, and uh, fungi to really like sort of push that apart yeah. together. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, you know, so my that's been my experience is like the parts that were really rough in our garden mm-hmm. are no longer that way.
0: That's good um, to hear.
1: And it's just that one plot that I think, I think there's like some hidden drain tile mm. somewhere that's leading right into up. it. I just don't yeah. think there's, yeah. and there's almost no way to find that stuff yeah. unless I just dig up the whole plot. Right. Which, so, no. <laughs> yeah, which I don't feel like doing.
0: Right. So <laughs> just no. <laughs> just yeah. if
1: I don't have to, great. Yeah. Um So,
0: so w- other than that, yeah. I mean,
1: yeah, that's been that's been huge.
0: Been the way you've done it. All right. I have a couple a couple questions here because I get asked so frequently about heavy clay, and I have zero experience with heavy clay. I am like your earlier farming experience with you had very well draining soil. I have this silty loam that I literally can't keep moist enough. So I don't know much about bad drainage issues. Is my experience is too much drainage. Um, and so a lot of people, you know, are going to get so much value out of hearing your experience with this. So let's let's tease this apart a little bit. So you used let's let's ignore the spot that's like super uh, boggy and just go for like a spot that was like had been horse pasture and was a little bit compacted and was heavy clay and wet. So You started. Did you start by tilling that, like a first time till? Like, can you walk me through your bed um, from start to finish in an area that wasn't like overly saturated?
1: Yeah. So there's a few. I've done it a few different ways. Okay. And it seems to be not the same result if you do it with some tillage. It's faster. Okay. Like the result, like you get to that good, you know, humming soil a little Mm -hmm. faster. Okay. Um, but. You can do it one of two ways. You can do the sort of, um, I mean, there's many ways to start a garden, but let's just say for our purposes, there's two main ways, which would be like adding, if you you know, like you have compacted sort of depleted uh, clay, um, adding a decent layer of compost and then tilling that into the soil and then never having to till again, right? Like you may cause some more compaction areas, but you're going to, reduce you're going to give some the soil something to work with to get through that compaction
0: and so the key Um, there is to put the compost with it to not just till like you don't do you think just if somebody can't get compost and they have heavy clay should they avoid tilling then because tilling would just end up creating more of a compacted thing or in your i know you use compost probably so maybe you don't know the the you know sort of comparison there but what would you recommend
1: I've done it without compost too. Oh, you have? So, okay. I, oh, I, I, Jenny, you. have tried you, I've it done all. It, I've I know, done Jesse. All of the things. I know you have. <laughs> um, and yeah, to my, to my own uh, detriment, to maybe. To detriment, <laughs> yeah. So, um, the, yes. Yeah, so, what in that situation, like if you don't have anything to sort of complement that, that depleted, you know, uh, element of the soil, um, and you can and you have the time uh you know what we've done in the past is worked up a plot like that um tarped it to kind of kill back any of the sod mm-hmm. um and then we plant a cover crop and then we okay. let that go over the winter and then the next spring like you you will still have weed issues um to contend with depending on you know how well the tarping did um but that will sort of get those roots down in there and, and okay. it it does help to break it up a little bit okay um if i mean the compost leaf leaves whatever you can use to like get in there and like break it up a little bit is is important and you will probably still have to do some broad forking but your soil will tell you that and i always tell people just go out there with the thing of rebar and if you can't really push it into the soil past like eight inches then you're going to have to do some broad forking and preferably you'd be doing that in conjunction with some compost Mm -hmm. um and it doesn't have to be a lot like compost is doesn't have to be a ton of compost if you can even just like I don't know have somebody come behind you with a cup of compost and just as you lift as you break open the soil with the broad fork just have them dump it in there something Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. just have to do that one time to kind of get it worked Mm in um that would be labor intensive on a large scale but on a small scale maybe that's something you could do um yeah and then you know with the uh, if you yeah like i don't think most people have access to really good compost yeah i would say most people don't um and most people couldn't afford it and For you i know jenny and you can talk to this talk Mm -hmm. about this a little bit it's not necessarily the right approach yeah um for flowers especially there are there are vegetables that it doesn't do that well with depending on the compost but like
0: yeah
1: for the most part vegetables do okay at a deep compost mulch um I think it may be different for flowers. Well,
0: it, they can work. It's it's tricky because um, again, you have to have really good compost. We have a, I think back in the in the archives somewhere, we have an old episode about um, quality of compost and everything that we did a while ago. But. I <clears throat> too often newer growers adopt the deep mulch system where it's like cardboard and then four inches of compost on top of that. And they're not planting actually through down to the soil. They just plant in the compost. They take a transplant or they direct seed um, into the compost. And then the roots of the desired crop do not actually reach down into the native soil. And that's where I, my farm struggled immensely with that problem because I didn't know how to solve that. I didn't know that was a problem for the record. That was one of those things that I got overwhelmed by and had to figure out. And so um, eventually I learned that you need to punch a hole through the cardboard and plant into the native soil even if you're using the deep mulch system but my issue with um, compost has been the quality of the compost which you just mentioned you know it's hard to get really good quality compost and then if you do manage to get it it is very expensive though I think it would be worth the cost if I could find good compost I would (laughs) but it's really really tricky particularly in an urban setting like I'm in um to get that really high quality aged nutritionally balanced um compost so there's a lot of quagmires to avoid when it comes to compost Um, and maybe we won't go too deep into that rabbit hole and people can go listen to the previous episodes on compost and I'll, I'll link to that but I do think that you can bring in compost and work it into the soil Instead of the deep mulch system, I think um, tilling it into the soil, even if it's not super high quality compost, is a good way to add that organic matter to stimulate um, the the whole biome in the soil um, to kind of like rev the engines. It's that like deep layer mulch on top of the soil that I have um anxiety about anymore (laughs) because it really tied up it did two things in my farm it tied up all the nitrogen um because i had the compost i was getting in it was just highly um carbon um, heavy in terms of it had lots of wood chips in it um and so we weren't work we weren't tilling it into the soil. We were just laying it on the top and doing that season after season after season. So eventually it was like just a really thick layer of compost on the beds, um, which is not balanced, which is actually not balanced at all. And then I was also having a lot of issues with it being hydrophobic and I'm on my drip irrigation system. And it just, you know, it was not actually watering the plants. It wasn't watering the crops underneath. So there's there's some, some cautionary tales about um, deep mulch. But in terms of your um, tilling it in because you had a heavy clay soil, that sounds like... It- Pretty much any organic matter, as long as it doesn't have pesticides or herbicides that are going to linger, or I guess more herbicides, not pesticides, um, as, as long as it doesn't have some chemical lingering because of the what it came in on the mulch, then maybe it's totally okay. And, and you don't need super aged quality stuff. What, what do you think? How, how important is the quality?
1: <laughs> I mean, quality is so important to compost, especially if you're. it's going to be a growing medium in that yeah. way. Um, you know, I think I do want to touch on that idea of the quality of the native soil though mm. um because i think like what happens a lot especially in clay soils this is particularly hard on clay soils mm-hmm. but it can be hard on uh, it can also happen on sandy soils in the opposite way so like in what happens is you lay this like thick layer of compost down over just over the soil you never till sort of mm-hmm. thing um and then you just get muck mm-hmm. right at the plant roots so like you know, like it'll break down, the weeds will all die or whatever, but then you put those, put those plants in, in the spring and it's wet and they just run right into a mucky mess right mm. there between the compost and the soil, uh, and the native soil. So like getting that native soil prepped first and prepared to like take on that compost layer, um, I found to be really important. And then, like I said, the, the, the sort of reverse of that is the, um, sandy soil where you get you right where the compost meets the sand, it's just like, there is no water, that hydrophobic yeah. thing where mm-hmm. it's like, there's no water in the mm-hmm. compost and then there's no moisture in the sand. Mm-hmm. So it just, there's nothing there to work with yeah. And Whereas if you'd put some compost into those beds to begin with, it would give that a little bit of moisture retention
2: yeah.
1: to that sand um, to be able to to hang on to, to water so that once those roots get there, cause they will, mm-hmm. roots are gonna go down 8, mm-hmm. 10, 12 inches. They're going to find that native soil and they need something to feed on yeah um and they need air and all these things like with compaction right one of the biggest factors is not necessarily the it it is the moisture that's important it's kind of everything but it's the moisture the nutrients but it's that air factor like Mm -hmm. air is a huge part of this like plants plant roots and microbes they all need oxygen they need to be able to respire their carbon dioxide in the same way we need to be able to breathe out Mm -hmm. after we eat something um and as we talk and that's you know that's like what the soil is trying to do too but if it can't mm-hmm. if it has that deep you know compaction layer both low like deep in the soil but also on top of the surface um it's not going to be able to breathe and that's going to lead to all sorts of problems yeah. um and yeah i mean that that like the, the quality of compost thing, like you said we've talked about it in that other interview but i mean yeah i mean there's always new issues popping up yeah. and and that multi-compost that we we're talking about that's yeah. like a That's great as a mulch. Like if you're going to mulch your tomatoes or mulch, uh, you know, whatever flower is the equivalent, um, that's great. But if you're trying to use that as a growing medium, it's, it's much more complicated. Yeah,
0: It definitely is. My solution to that, which listeners have heard already, is to... Um, <clears throat> to get mulch in the fall and use or not mulch sorry compost though it does feel like mulch um, to get compost in the fall and use it in my no-till tulip beds which are basically just raised beds that we fill um, with just straight compost to, as a growing medium for tulips because they don't need tulips they're just looking for any place to hang out put roots out and grow they're not the same as other plants so you can you can put them straight into this um, complete 100% compost and then and over the course of the winter. Um the uh, microbes are working on that compost. Also, there's living roots from the tulips in that compost. And what it is, is it just kind of like ages the compost over the course of the winter. Uh, and then when the spring comes uh, for tulips, we just yank the whole plant out, the bulb and everything comes out. And so at the end of that, it's about a six month process from start to finish. And at the end of that, we have a, an aged compost, essentially, that's already inoculated with loads of of the the kind of microbes you want at your farm, not to say that like... It's coming in with bad microbes, but it's just sort of like it's now in balance with the farm. It's like been at my farms for six months and hosting plants for six months. And so we're able to use the compost then that wasn't so great um, six months earlier, but now we're able to use it um, on our other planting beds. And that's that's worked out really well for me. Um, I basically have not bought in compost and just like immediately used it, uh, on, on regular beds for, I think maybe four years now, because it just wasn't working very well for me (laughs) when I was doing it in the past. It was, it was, it was not a happy place. Um, so yeah, definitely be cautious of compost. Um, everybody who's listening. Um, but I wanted to go back to the heavy clay specifically to make sure that I'm really getting listeners what they need here. Um, so you said you did till and you tilled in compost and then you, other times you tilled and you didn't till in compost. Now, was there an, an alternative like where you just didn't till at all and you tried that? you were just broad forking into the heavy clay? Um, or was it are you pretty much starting with tillage no matter what when you've been rehabbing this current farm?
1: Well, i don't know how you would do it if you didn't okay like i don't like you know if the way that clay functions like if you were to just clear that bed right like just clear the sod maybe you're using a tarp or whatever
3: yeah
1: um and then pulling that off and then trying to broad fork and like rake it it's just it doesn't it doesn't crumble like it just kind of slicks so i don't know i mean i suppose you could in a way Like um, you know, tarp it and then maybe add a cover crop and that would help. Because it does plants love clay. Like Mm -hmm. clay is underappreciated for its for its, you know, cation exchange capacity, its ability to hold nutrients and and um you know, for its ability to hold moisture, and that can be a really positive thing, especially in drier times of the year. Mm -hmm. Um so it can be a benefit, but it, you know, it has to be set up properly. And when you're broadforking clay, a lot of times, like if you don't have something you're working into that,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, it's just going to, it's sink like I right said back. with the mounds, like it's just going to sink right back Okay. okay. Um, because those those particles are so small. They just kind of, it's like, yeah, like kinetic sand or something. Yeah. Like it just yeah. like <laughs> sinks together. Um, it's like clay. I was going mean, to say, it, did it, you consider
0: starting a ceramic studio instead exactly. of a farm?
1: <laughs> if there's not good root systems going down in that clay and you don't have you haven't like done anything to sort of separate the physically separate the mm-hmm. clay it, it, there's not many options there like it's just going to take you a long time i mean alternatively maybe you could just keep mulching over top of it mm-hmm. for a few years and mm-hmm. just let it mm-hmm. keep getting there but like if you just put some mulch even if it's like a straw mulch or hay mulch over top of that it's just gonna be a mucky mess for right. a few years say it will get water. there yeah okay yeah. it will get there but it's slow Okay. Um,
0: so do you think a broad fork is enough? If there's, if there's newer, um, growers out there, they're starting really, really small and they're like, they don't want to invest in a BCS or whatever. Do you think a broad fork would do it? Or do you really need to get in there with machinery?
1: You know, broad fork can do it. Um, it just, you know, it depends maybe a little bit on the situation. Okay. I think, I don't think you have to go in and just like hammer it with a tiller. And that okay. may not be the, like, r- I wouldn't recommend that until it's a little bit on the drier side and okay. clay's tough. Like mm-hmm. there's a small window when it's like mm-hmm. wet, wet, wet clay, like concrete. <laughs> like it's very, it's, <laughs> right. it's intense. Like yeah. it can be, it can be kind of a small window where it feels like you should, or could work it. Okay. Um, so I actually like the approach with the broad fork. It just takes, it's just, you just takes have to longer. accept it's going to take a little bit longer. And then when you're doing that broad forking, like just like a pro tip, yeah. You know when a lot of times when people are broad forking they're they're going back like 12 or so inches mm-hmm. you know even like 18 inches mm-hmm. just going kind of as far yeah. as the tines will go yeah. like when you're broad forking in clay and you really want to get it going fast just go back like six inches you don't have to go that deep you're just trying to open it up a little bit so just go back a little bit okay it'll t- it's double the work but then you know it's less but work. double the time. benefits
0: so that's yeah. kind of the whole point all right that's yeah, good yeah it gets know. it
1: there faster
0: So then okay so we've we've determined that you need to kind of break open clay a little bit it's not something you can just start with the deep mulch system and probably be successful with you said you did some raised beds at your new farm as a way to kind of um, deal with drainage issues do you think that's what you would advise for people with clay in a in a intensive production s- setting like we're in like does that make sense to do the raised beds i
1: think yes i think so especially if you're In conjunction with compost okay um because then you have the option of maybe laying that compost down throwing that the the pathways in over top of the beds with something like a rotary plow Mm -hmm. um and then sort of mixing all that together or tarping it or maybe even adding another little layer of, of mulch of compost mulch or something um and then you've you've got something loose for the soil to work with you've kind of separated some of that those clay particles with compost um yeah i mean that's that's definitely an an, another option okay um yeah i mean if let me think if i was to do let's say i haven't now having done all these different things yeah Yeah. um what i would probably do in a situation where i have you know not like boggy like you said avoid the bog um, part (laughs) avoid the bog because that's just (laughs) an outlier um but like in a generic heavy clay not great drainage but not boggy kind of situation I would, and I have, you know, pretty much like what I need access to. So in terms of compost, mm-hmm. like I can make a decent compost, okay, um, uh, or I can buy a decent compost. I'd put an inch down, okay. I'd, first, I would I would tarp it, kind of kill back the grass, okay. Um, I would put an inch of compost down. I would raise those beds just just from the pathways, I wouldn't necessarily maybe work that first layer of compost, raise those beds, and then I would maybe put another small layer of mulch or compost down. Okay. Um, and then my if I had time, I would do a cover crop and then okay. I'd plant it in the spring. Okay. That's okay. like my favorite thing is if I can use that, it's sort of like you were talking about with the tulips. If I can use compost in conjunction with a cover crop mm-hmm. to let that cover crop kind of kind of like prep that compost mm-hmm. that's the ideal yeah um yeah it's not everybody doesn't have that access so you know maybe it would instead of that compost layer after i hill up the beds um then i would just layer uh do a do a cover crop then okay. that could also be an option without yeah. that second layer of of without like a mulching compost on top okay um yeah
0: And I want to clarify real quick for listeners, because I know in in the veggie world, this doesn't necessarily uh, apply. But when you say raised beds, we're talking about hilled up mounded soil um, on a bed. In the flower farming world, a lot of times people picture like, you know, like raised beds with sides, like with wood or um, metal sides or whatever. So we're not, um, in this context, we're talking about just hilling up the soil. So you don't have the added cost of putting in you know, built beds with, um, material that you have to build a bed up. So, um, although I I suppose you could do that too, but (laughs) it's not nearly. That's a good, uh,
1: that's a good clarification. Cost
0: effect. (laughs) If you're doing this on a larger production scale, as you say you're doing like an acre, you do not want to be out there with, um, Um, two-by-sixes building raised beds over that entire acre, you will quickly be bankrupt with the kind of um, (laughs) lumber prices that go. So I just wanted to clarify. So, okay. And you've mentioned cover crops several times, and I'm sure they are, so. I mean, cover crops are valuable for any grower in any context, in my opinion. Um, But for clay specifically, heavy clay, and you're trying to break up compaction, you're trying to bring more organic matter because adding organic matter to clay soil, I take, um, again, I got no experience here, but um, I take it that getting your organic matter levels up is probably going to be really effective in changing the texture of your clay soil structure and, and getting better drainage and everything. So, what cover crops do you think are best? Obviously it's different context, everybody listening, remember context, 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 but what have you used at your farm, Jesse, that seems to be a really good mix for clay?
1: Yeah, you want stuff with really heavy root systems. So like something like buckwheat, you know, that's a fast one that you grow in the summer and that's fine. Mm -hmm. It does not have a particularly heavy root system, Um, you know, if you're doing it in the summer sorghum sudan grass Mm. and you can mow it a couple times which helps um if you're doing and you can throw other stuff in there like suspania and a few others but you know you don't have to focus on that like having a huge diversity of stuff to begin with like just getting that those roots in the soil will make a huge difference um and it simplifies it cover crops are great but they can easily be a problem if you don't do Mm -hmm. them right so something simple in the summer Mm -hmm. sorghum sudan grass um, mow it a couple times over the summer or let the winter kill it, plant it in the spring or whatever, plant it over winter, however you want to do it. Um, it won't survive the winter hmm. in most places. I mean, it's certainly not, you know, maybe if you're further south, like if you're for maybe in like seven, Georgia six or, or a seven, yeah. eight, you know, yeah. somewhere in there, mm-hmm. maybe you want to reconsider that or at yeah. least talk to your NRCS agents. Yeah. Um, but then the, um, you know, over winter, something like rye vetch, I love rye vetch. Crimson clover's great. Um, those are, the lagoons have really good root systems, especially things like peas Mm and Austrian winter peas Those Mm -hmm. really thick Mm -hmm. root systems and they can do pretty well with clay. Um, as long as it's relatively prepared. Um, and yeah, those grasses do really well, like the grains. So, uh, winter wheat, rye, those are excellent. Um, that's what I would do. And I would just make sure that you understand like how those grow and. When they're gonna be when that's going they're gonna be able to be terminated okay because one of the biggest mistakes people make is they're like great I put in a cover crop great. I don't have to Yay! think about it and then in March they're like I need this <laughs> ah, bed, <crap. laughs> but there's a sod cover crop yeah. Here. yeah um so that's not you can't do it that way you got to yeah. wait until it's like something that you can kill or otherwise you're gonna have to till it in mm-hmm. um, which doesn't entirely defeat the purpose it's still better than you know mm-hmm. uh, having having it be fallow all winter but Uh, ideally you wait until it's ready to be terminated and that makes everything easier um and you know cover crop termination is a very complicated thing and i've done a couple videos on it that i think are helpful to be able to see it yeah um the uh but yeah and then there's also stuff like uh like uh field peas and oats oats Mm -hmm. are not a reliable winter kill for us um But peas are so field peas are great and they Mm -hmm. they just make a really nice like thick a mat of roots that works its way into the soil and it really helps to kind of break it up a little bit so. um,
0: Have you tried daikon daikon radishes or or tillage radishes at all.
1: A little bit. um, From you know they they like the thing you have to think about with clay or with any cover crops is like if it if nothing wants to grow there the cover crop's not going to want to grow there right. either like yeah. they're a good they're a good indicator of how well the next crop is going to do mm. um and radishes do not love growing in wet and poorly draining yeah. wet clay soils um they can if mm-hmm. it's somewhat well prepared um and they will you know it's the fine root hairs that actually uh uh natalie uh lounsbury who does our who is one of the hosts of the no-till market garden Mm -hmm. podcast um talked about like did studies on that and Mm -hmm. says like it's the fine root hairs that really do that decompaction yeah um so that is something you can use uh now that will push your season back a little bit in the spring just because Mm -hmm. they that you know that they they need to rot yeah Yeah. and Um, they stink
0: so for the record i am not that big of a fan
1: (laughs) oh yeah i'm not i don't really use them for that for those reasons um and yeah, it's rotting brassicas. If you ask anybody, yeah. that's just like it's top of the fun. list of things we don't want to be around.
0: Yeah, it's disgusting.
1: Um, yeah, and so yeah, that's like also another factor in there. Okay. Um, I don't think it's necessary. I mean, mm-hmm. if you've got these other crops going, I don't see a big need to use something like the. Yeah.
0: the um, I mean, I haven't. You know, I don't have experience with clay, but I will say when trying to just build organic matter and like like sort of loosen and change the soil structure at my farm. Rye really like made the difference in terms of it's just there's no no root system that I know of in any other cover crop that's quite that oh yeah I have not for the record grown Sudan grass because I have no way of really terminating it well so but um it's uh, the rye root system is really amazing and I found it to be really effective here for me Um, in building soil structure essentially. So I have a question about your vetch though because that's one that I avoid because once it's around I it became a huge weed for me uh, and took years to finally get it out of my farm because I used it as a cover crop at first and then it just seemed to constantly pop up even though I didn't let it go to seed it just I don't know. I don't know what happened there. <laughs> so any, any thoughts about vetch and making sure it doesn't become a weed?
1: Oh, uh, interesting. I wonder if it was there naturally before. Yeah, maybe. Did you? Maybe. Yeah. It was
0: like a fallow um, field that another person had farmed before me. And yeah, maybe they had left it around. So I don't know. <laughs>
1: yeah. Because we have it in our pastures and stuff, and it can be kind of like a little bit more intense. Um, it depends on how you kill. Like if, if you mm. kill it, if you kill your rye, well, your vetch should die too. Mm um and yeah you can't let it go to seed obviously and and uh yeah that's a that that one can be a little complicated um uh but it's great i like it in conjunction with the the rye because it holds it down so well it's mm-hmm. like sort of has like a velcro effect or something mm-hmm. um yeah it's a good one and also another one i want to throw in there because i think it'd be good for flower farmers and i think you and i have maybe talked about it i don't mm-hmm. know if we've talked about it in a podcast but is um lacy facelia
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: yeah it's a really good one that we plant um, I'm experimenting like it, it it'll winter kill if you plant it too early uh, if you plant it late it seems to be that you can that it, as long as it's small mm-hmm. it'll even peas are like this if mm-hmm. you plant your peas late they will survive they're not mm-hmm. gonna winter kill small stuff tends to be more hardy um so uh, but usually I'm planting Lacey facilia in January okay uh, or february like mm-hmm. after the solstice and that tends to be fine um but it is beautiful and the things it does for the soil just ah, the tilt it's amazing it's beautiful yeah it
0: is yeah i i uh I just ordered another 10 pound bag because i just love this stuff and it's so good and it um yeah and for flower farmers those listening who have never tried phacelia before it's a it's one of those wonderful um uh cover crops that's also a cash crop for us so we can sell the flowers and they're really funky weird like Dr. Seussicle flowers. <laughs> they're so weird. Um, but they're great. And uh, and then they also bring in, uh, for those you know who are interested, loads of pollinators. It's native to California, and it just has um, so much pollinator potential. But yeah, the root system of Phacelia, particularly if you plant it really thick, in my experience, it needs to be a pretty pretty darn thick planting um and same experience with that you have jesse if i plant it in like october it doesn't necessarily survive the winter but if i plant it later um in the season you know um, usually i'm doing mine in february uh but i like to intermix it with some other things um you know some other cover crops so it doesn't usually come up right away and then it's kind of lingering in there and it shoots up when it's ready so yeah it's amazing it's got such a good a good root system for the soil for sure
1: yeah yeah peas peas work really well with it we had good luck with that okay. and then, um and uh crimson clover as well those mm-hmm. are like a that's a good kind of pairing um yeah. and you could probably throw some grains in there if you wanted to but those are easier to kill, like yeah. those three together. Yeah. Like yeah, they're much definitely. more manageable to deal with in the spring. Yeah. Um. Beautiful, like you said, beautiful flower. Bumblebees went bonkers oh. for those.
0: Yeah, and the red um, crimson, the crimson clover. I use that as a cut as well, and people oh. love it, love it, especially in wedding work because in wedding designs, people don't know what it is, and so <laughs> it's uh, just like yeah. a cool red bunny tail, basically, and that's uh, very fascinating to everybody. So highly recommend crimson clover, uh, both for cover crop and cash crop for sure
1: yeah that's good yeah and same with rye like although Mm -hmm. those little
0: uh we have
1: uh friends who who um they do uh every spring or every i think it's like mother's day yeah they always have like they always throw some rye in their Mm -hmm. their mix
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um those little those little uh grain seed heads are pretty cool yeah and And rye's pretty it's got that like sort of great yeah teal. look to it like a teal green almost like a bluegrass thing
0: yeah and it's cool texture too in bouquets it's a it's a really good one for that and sorghum um i love to grow dwarf sorghum for the same reason it comes later in the season but uh dwarf sorghum there's a lot of cover crops that you can as a flower farmer i don't know if you i don't know if you veggie farmers have this uh dual purpose uh cover crop um benefits or not
1: (laughs) (laughs) some i mean you know things like um you know, we'll we'll harvest some of our flowering brassicas in the spring. Okay. Um, so those are those can be good. Uh, we'll do like um, you know mix in radishes and turnips, and uh, I had my mentor used to mix in like mustards and collards and all these different things in the fall. Turnips, salad turnips, uh, you know, uh, daikon's all this mm-hmm. stuff. And mix that into our cover crop mixes for the fall. Mm-hmm. And basically just like a forage crop, you just go out and harvest whatever was there. Wow. And then we would bring that to market. And that was like, it wasn't very efficient, but it was like yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. Because <laughs> you never, you never really depleted those cover crops. Like they yeah. would just, they would just keep coming. Yeah. Um, so that was cool. And that was like a, I don't know, I've, I've, I experiment with that sometimes. and yeah. do,
3: Yeah.
1: But um, yeah, a little bit, not, yeah. not quite as much, not in the spring. Like I can yeah. rarely take advantage of it in the yeah. spring.
0: Like I all, um I don't know if it was you that inspired me to do this. I think it was you. I tried cilantro as a cover crop. Have you done that? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. 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 And um for the record, I loved it in the field. But uh, those who've um, listened to my podcast or followed along on Instagram know that I tried it as a cover crop or a, a really more of an intercropping in my greenhouse last winter and uh, intercropped it with Campanula, which is a slower growing uh, flowering crop that needs a lot of space while it's getting started. And so there was a lot of bare soil essentially in the bed. And so I um, direct seeded some cilantro <clears throat> and oh my God, that was not a good idea for the record because- because cilantro in a greenhouse becomes like a tree. It was like oh, it was like six feet yeah. tall and like it was massive. Um, it was delicious. I loved eating it. I loved smelling it and all the things. But um, this is a this is a example of context if for a grower who is. Yeah, out in the field here were zone seven um and uh, have fairly harsh winters so cilantro does not get big in the field for us uh it's just you know a marginal crop so to speak in the field but i guess you know every every grower from california and those other places are like of course cilantro gets huge and it's like cilantro would never get huge for me <laughs> normally <laughs> but yeah when you put it in right. california conditions in a greenhouse it's suddenly like this massive plant so definitely um context makes a big difference and it's something to bear in mind um everybody who listens to us talk about these things
1: (laughs) yeah yeah
0: but i liked it i liked the flowers on the cilantro that brought in a ton of beneficial insects which was a good trade-off we had no issues with aphids um in the greenhouse because uh there were just so many um uh parasitoid wasps because they were so attracted to all the umbels of the cilantro so it did have benefits it just got way bigger than i thought it would
1: <laughs> yeah yeah that sounds like it yeah. uh yeah sorry about that. no 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 no. <laughs> it is I'm... a great. It is, yeah in the field it's great and like yeah. you said it has these be- big beautiful flowers mm-hmm. i like sweet alyssum for that too yeah. just like it's not big it's yeah. like very short it's little. <laughs> um it's very little and yeah. but it has brings in all sorts of good pollinators yeah
0: definitely yeah uh, so any, I know this has uh, been a longer conversation and I don't want to take up too much of your time. I I am curious if you have any other final words of advice to people with clay and compacted soils that, like I said, this is outside of my wheelhouse and I just really wanted to get some good solid advice for growers who are dealing with those conditions. Is there anything, well, when you, I wanted to, to follow up, when you changed the direction of your beds in that boggy area, did that help? Like the, that was worth You know changing the direction of your beds to get better drainage or did it not make that much of a difference
1: we don't know yet okay so we did it this fall and then now it's in cover crop um i i know it will work because we were so close on those beds anyway Hmm. but what would happen is like basically like one half of those beds would just stay wet so like I saw the improvement on the side that wasn't as wet, Mm. but was definitely still boggy. Like I saw a really good improvement and I saw a slight improvement where it was very wet. And so basically I've turned it downhill and I put all that wet area, like the first bed in that plot, it's very, very wet, that whole side. Um, so basically I just turned all the wetness into one bed or the two beds really. And that first bed is going to be chamomile okay because we had good luck in very wet spots with chamomile now that's not like a i don't know how that would work in other places right. but that's with common chamomile um this past spring was amazing and it was in our wettest i stopped even huh. growing in this bed i was like it's just too it's at the bottom of the hill yeah. it's the wettest of the wet and the chamomile did really well so basically yeah. we've left that we're going to leave that in chamomile and we're going to leave that first bed that gets really wet in chamomile and all the other beds will go. Uh, like I said, downhill in the first two that are still sort of in the boggy area, mm-hmm. I put those into Ryan and and the rest I put into peas and oats because those I'm not as concerned with. Okay. Um, so, you know, plants, I mean, plants just do our magic. Like they just, yeah. that's like the biggest thing yeah. is, um, you know, maybe that chamomile and stuff will eventually just like work that enough that I don't mm-hmm. have to, mm-hmm. that I can use those beds, those areas. Um but I'm fine with just having a big bed of chamomile yeah. too. Like if that's what it is, that's what it is. And I'm yeah. totally cool with that because it's beautiful and it, it smells, smells amazing. smells so and it's good. Like, <laughs> and the pollinators, like they just go bonkers mm. for that stuff. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I would love to incorporate, and we do around the garden incorporate more, fla- you know, varieties right. of flowers right. and stuff. But yeah. if I have one bed of one flower that works well, I'm good with that.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So
1: yeah, yeah, that's, that's, I, you know, plants are going to be, your your biggest uh
0: ally in this biggest yeah. benefit like yeah. you
1: can't you can't do any bare fallow yeah. um I, i'm always stunned when yeah. i see that in, in like um organic certification that they allow it and i'm like that is like the worst thing you could do for your soil it's yeah. like i always say like if it's if the soil is not being fed it is feeding on itself mm-hmm. so like if mm-hmm. you're in a situation when you're dealing with low organic matter already mm-hmm. that is going you have to keep replenishing it you have to put something there at at least a mulch but preferably a mulch in a plant yeah
0: yeah Yeah. and i would say um again speaking from from the no clay perspective but um i bet living uh, leaving the root balls of your past crops in the bed is super beneficial for clay too i mean i do that here just because i want more organic matter in my soil but i i bet you know if you're not ripping root balls out but leaving them in the soil that a leaves more organic matter in but then there's not that um uh compression that happens with clay if you can leave the root ball in right jesse you 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 don't have it settle down into the hole that would be left if you pulled the roots out am i explaining that well enough
1: (laughs) yeah no that i so yeah i mean when we flip a bed when we turn go from one crop to another we always leave those roots in there's like I mentioned earlier when I was first experimenting with no-till I was pulling the whole root Mm -hmm. out because I didn't know any better um but yeah when now we just clip it at the surface depending on the crop and we leave that root in and that's why I always tell people like people think I'm nuts for using soil blocks Mm. um because it is so much work but I'm like that is part of our fertility management Mm. program is because I'm putting like double or triple the amount of soil mix in that a lot of people are and that with that comes better root systems mm. and it, you know, the establishments faster all these things mm-hmm. like it is in my experiments those crops are faster to production they mm-hmm. are generally healthier like mm-hmm. it's just a it's just a better way for us to produce crops and yeah if i don't if i can't or don't want to plant that week they're fine to just hang out in the soil mm-hmm. blocks whereas cell trays it can be like
0: yeah a only, day. you have yeah. a window <laughs> you have a day <laughs> yeah and so
1: like with soil blocks i don't have that i like the flexibility okay um but also just that amount of soil mix that i'm getting Mm -hmm. into this the soil and then i'm leaving it there i'm not taking it to the compost pile it's just staying underneath yeah because then
0: like that soil that little bit of potting soil is like for every little transplant you put in that's an injection of of good quality potting soil into your bed that's like you will slowly over time with the thousands of plants that you put in you're <clears throat> you're injecting the clay with another um, particle size, which is going to help it ultimately uh, change and, and have different structure. So interesting. I didn't even think about that. The potting soil makes a difference yeah. too. Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we always, uh, anytime we're planting, we always inoculate our, mm-hmm. uh, like any, anything you can do in the greenhouse. That's mm-hmm. that's when your garden is like close mm-hmm. at hand, right? Like you yeah. don't have to move around. It's yep. the most efficient place that you can do anything. Yeah. So like growing a healthy plant start. Yeah. And then we dip that into like compost teas or something yeah. like JMS, and yeah. and then we take that out and um and then plant that. So that way we're not only putting yeah. in that. Yeah. Are, that large amount of soil mix, but also the microbes.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's an, a former podcast episode here on No-Till Flowers that I did with Lisa Mason Ziegler where we talked about seed starting and how you can inoculate your soil mix with all sorts of microbes to help send that out into the wider field space um, with time. So, But I'm excited yeah. to watch those beds that you change the orientation and see if that helps with the drainage and stuff. And I'm sure you'll be doing a YouTube video on that, I would guess. I'm, wink, sure, wink. I'm sure I will. <laughs> so in other words, listeners who who do have boggy, heavy clay areas, make sure you're tuning in to no-till growers on YouTube so you can follow along on Jesse's uh, experiments, which are to the benefit of all of us. So thank you, Jesse, for (laughs) doing all your experiments and all the leadership that you've put into this space um, with regenerative uh, small-scale growing. I really appreciate you and appreciate the time that you've given to this uh, interview.
1: It has uh, been a great use of my day so i'm i'm oh, nice. absolutely ecstatic <laughs> i love these conversations
0: yeah me too and, uh, yeah. i'm
1: always always happy to make some, make some time for them
0: well that wraps up another energetic episode of no-till flowers I'm so grateful you tuned in and hope you got several new ideas that can help you farm more in step with nature. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one. Also, please take a second to rate and review the podcast wherever you're getting it. Reviews help grow this show and let others know that it's worth a listen. Many thanks to Matt Moran, the post-production manager of No-Till Flowers, for his meticulous editing so you don't have to listen to too many of my outbursts of excitement and laughter. Also, gratitude goes to Nikolai Fox for the original music used here on the show. Until next time, remember, it all stems from the soil.
1: I think my biggest takeaway was like it doesn't matter like the soil yeah. doesn't care. the yeah. soil doesn't listen to my podcast you know like it doesn't <laughs> watch my videos it doesn't care
0: i wish it did that would be funny think. it should it should but <laughs> it, it does should, it should we should get them little headphones um, yeah it would be very helpful
3: <laughs>